So over the past several years, social media has been filled with a steady stream of individuals who are renouncing their faith in Christ and their membership in his church. And some of these individuals were at one time considered to be very famous and influential Christians. I think of people like author Joshua Harris, musician Marty Sampson, megachurch pastor Dave Gass, Desiring God writer Paul Maxwell, just to name a few. Some of these people are not necessarily famous or influential, but they are to us deeply beloved. They're our siblings, our children, close friends, people that we laughed with and cried with and served the Lord with. There are friends of mine from college, people that I was in the trenches with, doing ministry work with on campus, who've now walked away. A guy that I mentored for over a year, a student who sat in this room uh, on the stage before we remodeled and gave a testimony about how Jesus had saved him and changed his life, and then he walked away. And my guess is that most of you have similar stories that you could share about people you love who claimed to walk with Jesus and then sometime later walked away. These stories of deconstruction are plentiful, and they are as complex as the people who tell them. For us, they can be disorienting. They can leave us with a lot of questions, difficult questions, like, what happened? Is there anything or I or we could have done differently? How do I make sense of what I'm seeing play out right in front of me, and what do I do now? These are the very questions that John is going to address in our passage this morning. You see, this cultural phenomenon that the church now faces in America is not new. It's simply a fresh expression of a reality that is as old as the church, that there are people who at one point in life claim to believe in Jesus as their Savior and Lord and then sometime later deny him altogether. So this morning we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. We've been looking at this chapter for the past several weeks, and you'll remember we talked about how there are three tests in this chapter, three tests of Christian authenticity. The first test is the moral test, the second is the social test, and the third, the one we're going to look at this morning, is the doctrinal test in verses 18 through 27. Before we jump into the passage, let's take a step back and remember the context of this letter that we're reading. Following Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension to heaven and Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit was poured out on the apostles, John went around the region that is modern-day Turkey, planting churches, and he became the leading figure in the churches in that area. But with time, these churches that John had planted were confronted with a divisive problem. There were some people of influence within the church who got off track theologically, and their teachings began to threaten the purity of the gospel and the unity of the churches. So here's a question. What, how did they get off track? What were they teaching? Most scholars agree that John's opponents claimed that Jesus seemed to be human, but was not in fact human. In short, they denied Jesus' humanity, and this belief was rooted in an ancient Greek belief that the gods who are divine never entered the material world of humans, which was impure. So John's opponents believed that the realm of the gods and the realm of the humans did not and could not overlap. Therefore, if Jesus was a divine God, then he was not and could not have been human. And what this meant, in the end, was that they sought Jesus not because that they believed he had taken on human flesh, died an atoning death for their sins, and then rose in power to defeat sin and death. 
They sought him instead because they believed he could give them some type of mystical access to divine knowledge, that there was special information from God hidden in this figure of Jesus that they should seek out. And this group had gained influence in the churches that John had planted, and then they had left, taking some members of the churches with them. They had, like many who deconstruct today, deviated from the apostolic teaching and then departed from the church. And John, same John who walked with, talked with, and embraced the human Jesus for three years, wrote this letter to oppose this group. And it's here in verses 18 through 27 where we see John most clearly exhort exhort the faithful remnant of the church that remained. So as we look at this section this morning, I want us to see three principles Principles that were given to help John's original audience navigate their disorientation and principles that can help us as we navigate the same phenomenon today. Here are going to be the three principles this morning. The first is to honor the hour. The second is to trust the testimony. And the third is to abide in the anointing. So I want us to read this whole section together and then we'll go back and talk about each of these three principles. So I'm in 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Children, It is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Okay, so let's start by looking at the first principle this morning, the principle of honoring the hour. I want us to go back to verse 18 and look at how John begins. He says, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So twice in this verse, John says, it is the last hour. What does he mean when he says it's the last hour? John's statement here is an eschatological statement, not a chronological statement. And what I mean by that is, he's referring to an era of redemptive history, not a 60-minute segment of time. More specifically, he's referring to the already-not-yet era of redemptive history between Christ's ascension to heaven and his second coming. It was the era in which John's church lived, and it's the era in which we now live. And what the New Testament tells us is that one of the defining characteristics of this last hour is dangerous pressure on the church. 
There will be pressure that comes from the outside, like we talked about last week, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. And there will be pressures that come from the inside, like these false teachers who had emerged within the church and then denied essential beliefs about Christ and left, taking some with them. Here, John calls these false teachers antichrists. John was the only New Testament author to use this term. It's only found in 1st and 2nd John. It doesn't occur in Revelation, which is where many people associate it with. But what I want us to see here is that John doesn't have in mind, when he uses this phrase, diabolic, apocalyptic creatures. He has in mind former friends, former acquaintances and neighbors, former members of his flock who had abandoned essential beliefs about Jesus. Look at verses 22 and 23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So these people, as John sees them, had literally become anti against Christ. They had rejected the incarnation of Jesus and therefore they had abandoned the idea of his sacrificial atoning death and bodily resurrection. They had, simply put, left the gospel behind. And to John's audience, those who would have been listening to this letter be read out loud for the first time, these antichrists were friends and family members, people that they presumed at one point to be brothers and sisters in Christ. And they undoubtedly felt, as many of us do when we experience this same phenomenon, Confusion, disorientation, discouragement. And here's John's first challenge to them. Honor the hour. Jesus warns us that in this last hour, there will be great trial and tribulation. He warned us that many who claim to be Christians will be led astray by false teachers. He warned us that there will be wars and famines and earthquakes and intense persecution for the church. Read Matthew 24. He also told a parable to the point that the faith of some would initially sprout up and give the appearance of health and growth only later to be withered by the heat of trials or to be choked out by the worries of this life. Read Matthew 13. And John, who had heard Jesus warn of all these things and who is now seeing them come to fruition right before his eyes, reminds the church of the difficulties that Jesus promised would accompany this last hour. Why does he do it? It's not so that the church would fear the hour and despair. It's not so the church would avoid the hour and withdraw. It's not so the church would try to predict the hour and be distracted. It's not so the church would try to sit in judgment over the hour and be cynical. This is John's purpose in reminding us of the great difficulty of this last hour. It's that we would honor it and live faithfully in the midst of it. To honor something is to give it the sober recognition it deserves. We honor the hour by remembering these things, that God is sovereign, that he is completely good, and that before he ever spoke the earth into existence, he determined that you and I would worship him in this last hour. He called us to be his church and to embrace his mission in this era and in this place, and he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. So as we face the enemy who Peter says 
prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. As we face the enemy, we put on the whole armor of God so that we may be able to stand against his schemes. We rise up with sober, humble, but confident hope as we consider the words that Mordecai spoke to Esther when she faced her own sobering predicament. He said to her, Who knows whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this? Honor the hour. Second principle, trust the testimony. Verses 24, 25. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So John's reference in verse 24 to what you heard from the beginning is likely a reference to his gospel account, which he would have given to the church when he planted it, either in oral or written form. So the church had received the inspired, authoritative, apostolic testimony about Jesus, the Word made flesh, but as we've already noted, some within the church had gone on and abandoned it. They'd gone on to something new, something better something more sophisticated, something more palatable, something more fitting for the culture. And we don't have to look very far to see a similar phenomenon happening today. Individuals, churches, entire segments of Christianity whose view of Christ is and has shifted away from the apostolic teaching. There are, to some, some believe that the miraculous virgin conception is not acceptable to our modern, advanced scientific society. That substitutionary atonement is unacceptable given our more sensitive view of the Trinity and God's kindness. That the exclusivity of Christ as the way, the truth, and the life is insensitive and harmful to people who hold other religious views or are irreligious altogether. That the call to repentance is a pharisaical attack on the unconditional grace of Jesus. Right? We hear these things. And so some end up casting Jesus as this sort of amorphous, peacekeeping, wisdom teacher, social reformer who shows us how to live our best life but never challenges us to deny ourselves or to turn from sin or to submit to his will and his ways. Listen, I am absolutely mesmerized by the kindness and gentleness of of Jesus, by the way that he so often finds people on the fringes, how he goes to them first and he invites them to be a part of his kingdom and how he makes them the greatest in his kingdom. I pray that I become more and more like Jesus in that way. But that is not the only quality of Jesus. Jesus' full divinity also includes things like righteous anger. Do you remember how he flipped tables in the temple? His offer of salvation also includes a clear call to repentance. He clearly says that his mission will not just bring restoration, but that it will also bring division. Division between father and son, mother and daughter, sibling and sibling. I think that one factor, and it's just one, like I said, every story of deconstruction is complex, but I think that one factor that can leave people jaded and confused about Jesus is that they never truly grasped him in his fullness. Maybe they grasped one quality of him. Maybe they grasped one component of his ministry, and it was probably the one that they were most comfortable with. 
but they didn't wrestle with the complex fullness of Jesus' nature and his ministry. And then one day, when sin or suffering contradicted their conceptions of Jesus' nature and purpose, they falsely came to the conclusion that either the gospel is flawed or God failed. And they walked away. John clearly came to a different conclusion about what had happened among those he knew. John does not believe that these people walked away because God failed or the gospel was flawed. He says they walked away because, simply put, they were not of us. He says, for if they had been with us, they would have continued with us. In other words, in John's opinion, they haven't forsaken faith in Christ and fellowship with his church. They never truly had it to begin with. They may have thought they did, and they surely convinced others that they did, but in reality, they did not. They were like the seed of faith that sprang up initially and looked promising only to be strangled and withered by the cares of the world. Now, this is not fun to think about. It's not easy to stomach. I would imagine that John spilled many tears over this letter, and I know that many of you have spilled tears as well. My wife and I prayed with grief over one of these situations just last Saturday. We pray that what never truly happened will someday happen for these people, that our friends and family members will someday truly turn to him, not with a mere external show of religion, but by a new birth into the kingdom of heaven by his spirit. And as we do this, we allow what we're seeing play out before us to serve as a sobering warning that we cannot let the cultural conceptions of Jesus cloud our understanding of who he truly is. Nor can we accept the parts of Jesus that fit our taste and discard the parts that do not. If we do, we leave ourselves vulnerable to theological deviation, disillusionment, and ultimately destruction. And John knows this. And that's why he issues the first of two commands in this section in verse 24. He says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Let it abide in you. The Greek word translated abide is one of John's favorite words. It's also translated remain, stay, continue, endure. John is saying in the face of these new teachings, stay put in the old gospel message. Trust the testimony. Over and above the cultural depictions and expressions of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, trust the inspired, prophetic, apostolic testimony of God's Word. Stay in it. Don't wander off into speculation. Don't wander off into some new idea. Abide in the Word. And if we do, we have this promise that we will abide in the Son, we will abide in the Father, and we will have eternal life. Honor the hour, trust the testimony. Last principle here is to abide in the anointing. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. 
John's opponents claim to have some new teaching, some new spiritual revelation from God that could only be accessed through this divine mysticism. And John's purpose here is to assure faithful believers that they already have the fullness of God's special spiritual knowledge. They have the testimony, which we just discussed, and here John's focus is that they have the Holy Spirit. They have been anointed by the Holy One. They had, at the time of repentance and faith in Christ, been born of the Spirit into the kingdom of God. And the same is true for us. When we turn from our sin and trust in Christ, we're born again by the Spirit into the kingdom of God. God himself comes to dwell inside of us by his Spirit. Listen to what John has to say about about the Holy Spirit in his gospel. The Holy Spirit is our helper. He is the Spirit of truth who teaches us in the ways of Christ and he reminds us of Jesus' word. The church, because it has received the word of God and the spirit of God, already has all the special spiritual knowledge it needs. Therefore, John's second and final command in this section shouldn't be as a surprise. It is, once again, to abide. The end of verse 27, abide in him. In the face of these new claims to spiritual power and spiritual knowledge, John calls his flock to endure in abiding in the Spirit of God. Among all the apostles, John is the one who is most concerned with the person of the Holy Spirit and living a Spirit-filled life. If you want to develop a theology of the Holy Spirit, you will pull largely from John's writings. There are some circles of Christianity which focus on the Spirit to the detriment of being faithful to the Word. And there are other circles of Christianity which focus on being faithful to the Word but neglect the ministry of the Spirit or quench it altogether. And individual people have an inclination one way or the other. But healthy churches and healthy people joyfully embrace and pursue both the ministry of the Spirit and the ministry of the Word. They worship, as Jesus said they would, in spirit and in truth. And both are essential. Without the Word, the Spirit has no vocabulary. And without the Spirit, the Word has no power. Here's the deal. Many of us have probably been taught how to read the Bible. But fewer of us have probably been taught how to abide in the Spirit. We're sitting there thinking, what does that even mean? What does that look like? How do we do that? I'll just tell you how I try to do it. Inconsistently, imperfectly, but how I try to do it. The first thing is you need to acknowledge that abiding in the Spirit is fundamentally about the posture of your heart. It's about the position of the core of your being the core from which you think, believe, and choose. Abiding in the Spirit can only happen when this thinking, believing, choosing core assumes a posture of surrender. When we bow our hearts and our lives before the living God day by day, moment by moment. So here's an image that helps me think about what this might look like. What does a dog do when its owner approaches? It runs out to meet them, Tail starts wagging and then flop over on its back. Exposes its belly. It makes itself completely vulnerable. 
It assumes a position from which it cannot fight. It cannot resist. Arms up, it leaves all of its vital organs completely exposed. It surrenders. It would never do that for an enemy. But for a loving master, it is the dog's joy. The dog puts itself in position to receive the master's love. In order to abide in the Spirit, we must do something like that before God. We must go belly up as an expression of trust and surrender. And it's only then that we will position ourselves to allow the Spirit to work in us and through us. And this is an ongoing process, day by day. It's an internal process. For me, sometimes it can be helpful to attach an external action to that internal process or to vocalize it in some way. You can do that many of different ways. You can kneel. You can get on your face. Uh, often what I'll do is just open my palms like this, right? As a way of saying, God, I'm, I'm not going to try to control my life, my outcomes, all those things. I'm opening my hands to you. And then I'll just say a simple phrase, something like this. Holy Spirit, would you empty me of myself? And would you fill me with your presence? And would you help me to abide in you? And then I turn my hands over and I get back to work. But as I turn my hands over, I try my best not to let my heart turn with them, but to walk around in that posture day by day. It is this consistent act of abiding in the anointing, of trusting in the testimony, those two things together. It's through them that we put to death the works of the flesh, that the fruit of the Spirit comes to life in us, and that we have the ability to honor the hour with faithful endurance, even as we face its great trials. Let's pray together. There are going to be a few questions up on the screen. You can just take some time and reflect on those and we will finish with worship.